Hello, I'm Steve, the retired criminal investigator with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, the Federal Law Enforcement Agency of the United States Air Force. I'm Hannah, the amateur true crime enthusiast. I've been fascinated with my dad's job, and I love starting conversations with him to learn more. Join us each week as we share these conversations with you and discuss a real criminal case that piques our interest. Welcome back, Archivist. Hello. Welcome back. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Hannah. Are you bored of me yet? Or are you annoyed <laughs> of me yet, I mean? Um, no. It's great having you guys over today. I was going to say this is the first time we've recorded in person in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We went out. Went to like three bookstores today. The kids like books. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's bring it on. What do we got? Okay, so today we're actually going to talk about what is been referred to by multiple places as one of the most high-profile cold cases in Canada. So it is the murder and disappearance of Sharon Pryor, which was recently just solved. So we're doing another Canadian one. Yes. I really like... The CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, yeah, they have a lot of information when they report on things, mm-hmm. and the there's like a they write a di- ton of different articles with like different information and their sources. They have a good amount of resources and information. Yeah, that's good. That's good because it does seem like when we're doing these types of uh, things, these types of cases. It does seem like the media just sort of regurgitates it in our country, you know, just, oh, same article, oh, same article, oh, same article, you know. Yeah, when I'm doing my research into a lot of, especially the the recent genetic genealogy stuff, it's like copy and paste between Fox, CNN, Times, all of the local, like, people. It's literally just like copy and paste between all the different articles. But the CBC, and now that's, I'm not saying that the CBC is the only one that reports on these cases because I have been able to find other sources and other um, news articles from Canada. But like the CBC specifically, when they cover a story, they seem to cover it like in depth over the years. So there's like a lot of. I I just bought a book about it and and I wanted to mention the book, but I don't I don't have the picture because I deleted it. All right. Keep going. I'll I'll cut that out. Anyway, they just cover, I was just saying, mm-hmm. they just cover a lot of, over the years, they they tend to stick with the story and see it through, which is nice for information. All right. Let's peel back this onion. You haven't said that in a while. Hmm. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Oh. <laughs> Let me guess. We got something different this week or? I already said what we had, so. <laughs> Oops. Okay. <laughs> Sharon was born on February 9th, 1959 in Point St. Charles, Montreal region, Quebec, Canada. She had a brother and twin sisters. And at the time that this story takes place in 1975, she was 16 years old. Her family talks about her dreams of becoming a veterinarian. Uh, That's what her sisters, Doreen and Maureen, say. So she was last seen 
Saturday, March 29, 1975, at around 7.15 p.m. when she left her house to go to a pizza place called Marina. It was 600 meters or about 0.3 miles away from her house or also five blocks. So like not even a full mile. Oh, wow. Like not even half a mile. She was going to meet some friends there, but she never arrived. Now, this is also Easter weekend. Mm -hmm. She had spent the day with her family doing different Easter activities. So when her friends notice that she didn't show up and her family notices that she doesn't come home, obviously she's reported missing. Three days later, however, so there's not going to be a whole lot of, there's not going to be like a very big search done that I'm going to be able to report on because three days later... Mm -hmm. Um, her body is found in a wooded area of Longay is how the one video I saw pronounced it. So I hope that I'm pronouncing yeah, that correctly. Yeah, it's a French word probably. Longay filled. So it's a like a wooded area on Montreal's south shore. It's about 15 mm-hmm. miles from where she went missing. Okay. So the autopsy is going to reveal that her skull, Sharon's skull, was fractured and she had been sexually assaulted. Oh, geez. She died from asphyxiation and from the fracture. So essentially uh, what police say is that she was brutally beaten to death. Oh, my gosh. Where are they? She probably fought back, I'm hoping. I would hope so. Yeah. I don't have any DNA under. We don't have any DNA like under fingernails or anything to say. That they've reported on, at least. Okay. So where her body was found in the field, she was lying on her back. Her pants had been removed, and they were found about six feet away from her. Her underwear also where it was removed and found about 10 feet away from her on a tree. There was white tape in on her wrist and stuck in her hair. Police believe possible restraints. There was also her coat. So... I watched a hearing from one of the detectives, and this is where I got a lot of this information from, and it was really hard to understand him, but I believe he said that there was also a coat that was covering her face that was attached to a man's t-shirt that I know is evidence that they took. So that was my understanding of what he said, that there was also a coat that was covering her face. Uh, Essentially, her face was covered. It sounds like there was a fight. sounds like she was fighting and, and... The bad guy had to, you know, end up killing her. And, and, like, can you see her pulling the coat and the man's T-shirt, pulling it, and he just got out of there real fast? So they said, police are saying that the men's T-shirt ha- was used to restrain her. Oh, okay. So okay. it was, like, okay. the way that it was tied uh, with the coat, okay, yeah. it was, like, restraining yeah. her. Okay, all right. There are also tire, tri- tire tracks that they find at the crime scene. Specific tire tracks. Oh, good. Okay. We can do some imprints. The man's t-shirt would have been about a size extra large or large. Mm -hmm. There's also footprints. So they have an 11-inch man's footprint believed to weigh about 90 kilograms, about 5'10 to 6'2 in height. Mm -hmm. Which I think it's interesting that they can get like the weight and stuff. I guess for how deep the impression is. What kind of print was it? Did did they say? An 11-inch man's footprint, a shoe footprint. 
So one, yeah, suppose good. One article I I read said that it was snowing, but that was I again I read multiple articles and I watched a video, and that was the only article that said that it was it, there was snow on the ground. So I'm not sure how true that is. Well, I do. But if be- there was snow, yeah, I do believe this science. I'm not really sure, but I do believe this probably science where, based on how deep the imprint is, yeah, they can tell. They can do some fancy math and tell how heavy, how much weight was bearing down on it. That would make sense, but like, you know, people but what walk if you differently. Jumped out of the yeah. back of a truck or something. It's not. And you know, exact. like I walk with a heavy foot, so I kind of oh, like Jesus. pound. <laughs> yeah. So I like stomp when I walk. Yeah, you walk into a room, and people know, and and then like, and then your momentum, like when you sit down on the couch <laughs> next to me, it's like, well, blam, like you. You don't brace yourself. You just let them. <laughs> Anyways, no, we're off on a tangent now. That's just how I walk. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then they were able to get DNA from her pants and underwear and then mm. on the men's shirt as well. Okay. So immediately after her death, about 38 people were interviewed. Six of them were prime suspects, but eventually cleared because of lack of information. Over the years, uh, more than 120 suspects, over almost 50 years, by the way, um, were looked at and then excluded by DNA wiretapping and searches. So that's really uh, okay, how so where the investigation is going. They're looking at people. So is it cold yet? Or or so? Give me the first round of suspects again. Give me that. The uh, first round was 38 people. There were 38 people interviewed right after her death. Six of them were prime suspects. Six. Of the, does does it say why? Do you have information why? No, because they were excluded. So there's uh, not going to uh, be. But they weren't excluded by DNA in those days. They those ones were cleared of lack of information. Yeah. Okay, so hopefully, eventually down the road, when DNA advanced. In the 90s. They clear. Well, then it does It does say that there's more than 120 suspects over the last 50 years that ended up all being excluded because of DNA wiretapping or searches. Okay. All right. So now it's important to tell you that on the same day that she went missing, at the same exact time, on the same street that Sharon would have been walking on to get from her house to the pizza mm-hmm. place... Uh, a 22-year-old woman was attacked at knife point. It seemed like it was going to be like an attempted robbery kidnapping. The suspect told her in English not to scream and threatened her to go with him. Now, at the time in Quebec, and I believe st- what I read was still today, the official language was French. So she that was noticeable to her that the person was speaking English. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that. So it, Quebec, it is French. So... Uh, probably English stood out. Yeah. You know? She pushed... Because you know how it is. Someone that can speak both language, the stronger language, you know, or the second language, the weaker language is going to be noticeable. Oh, that's just somebody who's second language because you can hear an accent. But it sounds like the English was like prominent. Yeah. Like maybe somebody from across the border in the United States or something. Yes. So she pushed back at him, and there were actually also witnesses around. So mm. she was kind of using her surroundings and yelling and, like, mm-hmm. trying to get attention from people. So she tells the police that it was an English-speaking white male, about 28 years old, 
about 6'2", 210 pounds, blue eyes, brown hair with a mustache and a blue ski coat. So that's the description that she's able to give police. Mm -hmm. So that's something that happens, I mean, literally right at the same time. So police are thinking maybe, like, did that abduction fail and then he, like, ran into... They got to look into it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, that's where people, you know, police start investigating Uh and looking at other suspects and other people. So about a year later in 1976, police allow the news to start reporting that Sharon was likely alive when she was put into the the wooded fields on the South Shore. So now they're saying that they believe that she was alive when she was placed there and she's let they're letting the public know that they know that. Mm-hmm. From there, it's pretty much going to go cold. All right, so a year later, so 75. Yeah, around that same time, they really are just interrogating people, interviewing people and clearing people because of lack of evidence and you know they really can't match any dna at the time in 74 75 sorry Mm -hmm. so it is going to go cold at this point in 2004 a tip comes in that sharon had been kept in a garage in point st charles before being taken to the field so police were able to get into search the garage however no evidence is found where did that tip come from Someone put in a tip. Oh, when was that? 2004. So they're still actively, they're still actively like working the case and asking for tips. The family is actively keeping Sharon's name in the public. And this is known as like the most infamous cold case. Okay. So, so so they must have, so 30 years later, they must have like a crime stoppers equivalent or something. And somebody said, what'd they say? That. She was kept in a garage in Point St. Charles before being taken to the field. Oh, wow. So they searched the garage. Oh, they gave them actually the person's garage, yeah? Yeah. Uh, 30 years later, you hope for blood. I mean, it was on the news. I watched a news report of the police, like, literally in front of the house in the garage searching. You know how, like, we do the Mm -hmm. same thing where you can see the police literally with their CSI vans and everything and the families out front? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and they cleared whoever owned that house. There was no evidence that they 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 were able to found, mm, find. Okay, and it was really sad because like I was watching this news footage mm-hmm. now, and it was from 2004, and the family was like, "We're so they were so excited because they're like, it's we're finally going to get answers, it's finally going to get solved, and then to know that they still had to wait another 15 years, that nothing was going to come out of that." As I was watching the news, mm-hmm. it was sad, but also. It was like bittersweet watching it because now they have the answers. But and that was, you know, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's going to go cold. Not really cold. I mean, they're still working on it, but there's no new leads. There's no new like good tips coming in until 2012. Eight years later, a $10,000 reward is put up by an anonymous donor. A command post is set up by police in the neighborhood where Sharon was living at the time in 1975, just oh, wow. so they are able to like easily talk to people in the community. Yeah, so they're so, available. Yeah. Okay. Welcoming people in. Nothing really comes of this either. And then in 2019, DNA samples from the crime scene are sent to Parabon Nano Labs. Now there I didn't get I didn't get a whole big like elaborate you know oh we saw the Golden State Killer case, you know how in most of these they talk what about year this. Is this. It just says in 2019 DNA yeah. samples were sent. And you know that lab's here in Virginia and they're the ones West that, Virginia. 
This one's in West Virginia. Oh, West Virginia? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this area, and they're leading this this charge, the genetic genealogy. Well, they reported that it was in West Virginia. Okay. So. You sure they didn't say Western Virginia? No, they definitely said West Virginia. All right, well, that's good. That's a good connection because to I, us. Because I made a, I, it caught my eye because the person who killed her is from West Virginia. Oh. So I was like, oh, that's weird how that worked out. Okay, all right. So that's good. So 2019, and what happened to 2018? I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Well, hold on, but yeah, that's okay. <laughs> they so, reached out to Parabon Nanolab for snapshot phenotyping. That's what I meant when I said I got ahead of myself. I'm sorry, I oh. I was reading too slow. Oh, the phen and the phenotype, and this is. Um, but they also upload the DNA to GEDmatch too. Right. So the phenotyping is just based off the DNA. They can uh, draw a photo. And it, it looks like him. I think this is the one, this is like the most lookalike that we've seen. I mean, they can get down to freckles, mm. to ethnicity on this. Yeah, it's crazy what your DNA can do yeah. and tell you. All right, so so Parabon said, here you go, the game of photo. Mm-hmm. And then they also upload the DNA to Jedmatch. Right, Jedmatch is a place that you can just upload your DNA, right? Is that, is that GEDmatch? Yeah, GEDmatch is the database. So, like, it's similar to Ancestry, but they work more closely and, like, yeah. they let you know, like, our database is open to law enforcement without a warrant. But, so you can put your DNA sample into GEDmatch yeah. and find your, like, family tree through yeah. GEDmatch. Yeah, okay. So, like, you can use it. All right. And I think they also, I think you can, like, hire the geneticists that work mm-hmm. for these companies, too. Like, it's similar to Ancestry. Like, All right, you pay so they fee. loaded... Um, the DNA of the victim. June 8th of 2022, a Montreal, law, a Montreal lab analyzes the suspect's Y chromosome. So the Y chromosome um, is from a man is passed down from father to son, and it's pos- passed down from generation to generation. Through father to son? Yes. Yeah, okay. And it's gonna it's like always going to be the same. It's always always going to be the same and you can get to last names so you can narrow it down to like a last name and find those last names and who that like family Mm -hmm. is which is really cool this is what they do with what they did in Jedmatch so they uploaded the DNA into Jedmatch and this is what they're doing like two years later in 2022 sounds like COVID happened and they had to take a little break Well, but you can also see that these things don't happen overnight you know what I mean it takes it takes a while to track uh, build the family tree and track it backwards essentially so now this again is done to provide new leads Mm -hmm. so they are able to find the names either romaine or romine so the next day on june 9th 2022 they begin investigating those two different names the romaine and romine and they end up finding a franklin romine Mm mm-hmm so when they look into him, they find out that he is an American from West Virginia. He was born in Huntington, West Virginia in 1946. He mm-hmm. did have three brothers, but none of them ever lived in Montreal or Canada in general. Oh, wow. He was living in Montreal in 1975, just about six miles from where Sharon was abducted. Police find also that the vehicle that was registered to him at the time was the of the murder did in fact match the tracks that was left at the crime scene. Oh, nice. That's right. So we remember, we had tracks. So they probably had photos or prints, like plaster mm-hmm. prints or something of that, and DNA. That's like the, the main thing. So now they're saying, 
he drove a car and it had tires that matched the prints. Yeah. Awesome. He had a pretty extensive criminal history also and his family. So police go like police zero in on him and they're like, okay, they rule out that other name family and they rule out everyone else and they, this is who they're going to look at. One of the things that, that we have to mention that's a lead that didn't necessarily happen in any of the other cases we talked about is the Canadian police also had a check uh, travel status, right? Because the guy's from West Virginia, United States. So they said, okay, has this guy ever traveled? Yes, he traveled. Oh, what was he doing up here? Well, he resided here for a while. So they're learning all this about him. Oh, and he and he lived. Yeah, they found their uh, car registration. And, and, and car regi- so, so they're tracking that all, all down. Okay, good. So his family... R- remember, this This takes some time, too. And some of the other mm-hmm. cases we've done, this actually takes the longest, right? Yeah, doing you, the research you, into build the person. You're in, building up. You have, it's a lead. You're just building up a profile. His family will end up uh, talking a lot about his history of violence towards women, mm-hmm. sexual violence. He spent a lot of time in and out of jail between starting um, at the ages of between 12 and 14 years old and then on. He even attempted to escape from prison. Now, his name had never come up during the original investigation back in 1975. His name has never come up. So he was actually arrested in Montreal in 1975 and extradited back to the U.S. for a home invasion rape that he had committed in Parkersburg, West Virginia, in 1974. He spent five to ten years in prison for that crime. Oh, so he so he went to Canada. He was he fled to Canada. Fled to Canada. He fled to yeah. Canada. So he was arrested in February of 1972, and then was released on a 2,500 bond. And then two months later is when he fled to Canada. After he spent five to ten years in prison for that um, crime, when he was extradited back, when he was released, he actually went back to Canada and ended up passing away in a Verdun hospital. Um, at the age of 36 in 1982. Yeah, he's probably on drugs and stuff, you know. So they do say that he died under, they know that it was suspicious and violent circumstances, yeah, but police are not able guy. to find a death certificate and they're not able to really, they're not able to find a death certificate and they're not able to really piece together how he died. They just know that it was violent and suspicious. How, how do they not have a death certificate? How do they know he died then? He died in a Verdun hospital. Oh, I don't okay. know why. They're just not able, like police now are not able to get their hands on a death certificate for him. Oh, okay. They're just told that it was a violent, suspicious death. Oh, so I so don't really, someone he that wasn't. Someone might not have applied for it. He didn't have anybody. Yeah, he just went to the morgue. Because his body is sent back to West Virginia. Ah. And he's buried in West Virginia. Okay. Yeah, so I, I really don't know. So, somebody's, he, he had family members that. I said, yeah, we'll take him. <laughs> what do you mean? This was in 1982. They didn't know he was a oh, murderer. Oh, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, good point. So he was a bad guy. Yeah. All I right. mean, they, you're right, though. His family did know because his family does talk about his okay. violence towards women. So two of his brothers willingly and voluntarily give Heck their yeah. DNA to police in December of 2022. Okay. One br- brother even told the police officer who was taking his sample that his brother Franklin probably had killed Sharon, saying his brother had tried to rape his wife while he was away serving in the Marine Corps. So he just is like, yeah, talking about his brother and the violence mm. that he had towards women. So obviously those two brothers were not never close after that incident. So yeah. <laughs> the brother was like, yeah, take my DNA. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no kidding. Okay, and so now it's a match. They got the, the car... The tires 
and the DNA match in. Well, so now they still have to match. They still want to match his actual DNA, though. So they want to exhume his body. Oh, so Canadian police are going to make a trip to the United States. Yes. West Virginia. What couldn't think of a better place to go? <laughs> That's awesome. That's nice. That's yeah. a nice state, I suppose. Yeah. April 6, 2023, a hearing is held in Putnam County Circuit Court regarding a, peti- a petition to exhume Franklin Remind's remains to mm-hmm. do the DNA testing. Detective Sergeant Eric Rassicott, a detective with the Longueuil Police Department, testifies for almost an hour and is basically telling the judge in the court all about Sharon Pryor's case and how they got to Franklin Remind's name and why they want to mm-hmm. exhume his body, obviously. Franklin Remind's brothers were actually against this exhumation because they were worried that their parents' bodies would be disturbed during the process oh, because they were yeah, buried in the, yeah. right, the plot yeah. next to them. I, I, can, I mean, that's, that's legit, I guess, yeah. Yeah, they even sent letters to the court vehement, vehement, vehemently Vehement. protesting, yeah. that was in quotation marks, saying, and this is a quote from what they said, we were told that the family of the victim wants closure. We completely understand and have the deepest sympathy for the family. However, we fail to understand why this is necessary as we're told that if they do exhume him, there might not be enough DNA to prove anything. Going, And then they went on to say... We are willing to stipulate that our brother is guilty of this crime, and you can inform the family that he did it and has been dead since 1982. To be fair, like they both, did, like two of the brothers did provide their DNA. No, I get it. They they have so, a good, they have a legit argument. I get it. Yeah. This is ju- so this is this has nothing to do with whether anybody believes that that this guy is the guy, right? Right. This has to do with. Okay, first of all, the brothers believe it is because he's they a said, shit, yeah, shit he bum. Definitely, yeah. The police believe it is, but they need sufficiency and closure, right? What this is now about is disturbing our parents' gravesite. Yeah. Which is a total different emotional argument. Yeah. So understandable. Sergeant Detective Rassicott mentions to the judge in the court that he does not want to cause any harm to the fam- the surviving family members of Franklin Remine. Mm-hmm. He goes on to say during this testimony, in quote- quotation, that's why we want to get a DNA of Franklin Remine on his burial site. We don't want to cause any prejudice against the Remine family. We only want to ease the pain of the victim's family. So I get that too because like, his name's going out there, and like, it's why wouldn't you want? Yeah, I got it. Yeah, to get like, the DNA in case the, the it, victim wants closure because the police. Well, and for the for Romine's family, it. though, I mean, yeah. like he's saying he doesn't want to cause any preju- prejudice towards the family if maybe, you know, they just want to be a hundred and ten percent sure. Oh, I got. That's you. what he's saying. He doesn't want to no, cause. That's any... a good point. That makes sense. So, so we can't just all assume because what if it wasn't. Your brother, and this could cause problems. Maybe it was the other brother that didn't give his DNA. Yeah, or something. Yeah. Okay. And just he was like using his identity or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Putnam County Circuit Court Judge Phillips Phillips Stowers says, in quotation, the court believes that given that there is sufficient cause here to order that the body be exhumed and the and that information for DNA purposes needs to be retrieved will be permitted. So the judge also gives instructions to return the gravesite to its original condition when they are done mm-hmm. with the exhumation to respect the family's wishes. So essentially he, he says, yes, we're going to allow the exhumation. 
So May 2nd, 2023 at Pine Grove Cemetery in Putnam County, West Virginia, Franklin Remind's body was exhumed. They take several bones and other evidence from the casket back to Canada for testing. And a couple weeks later, it is confirmed that he was, in fact, the person who murdered Sharon Pryor. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. That he is the person who murdered Sharon Pryor. All right. And, you know, I'm assuming they took great care in, in, you know, covering the grave back up for the family and, and all that. And Yeah, the judge and, was very clear about that. Yeah, and then they gave they give the victim's family closure. Uh, so that's that's good. Yeah, they did make a, a statement again saying that had he been alive, mm-hmm. they would have arrested him arrested and brought charges, brought charges, of course. Yeah. All right. That's Canada number two. Another, another one in Canada. Yep. That's all I have for this one. But this, I mean, this was one of, I mean, the most high profile case, yeah. the, like the most infamous case, cold case in Canada. It was uh, 48 years almost so, that it took, uh, almost 50 uh, years, 48 years. Have you noticed? So Golden State Killer Genetic Genealogy 2018, right? And then somewhere around 2019, all these other cases surfaced that you and I have done. And then through COVID and the genealogy and the tracking the sus- suspect around 22 a lot of them i'd like to go back and look and see how many went how many were resolved in 22 yeah and then also detective sergeant rasicott is apparently working with our fbi to see if there are any other unsolved murders committed by franklin remind oh that's cool so, he's a bad enough guy that 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, but was convicted from before, Canada. Yeah, because yeah, he, I mean, he was living in Canada for a little bit. The thing, and though, oh, wait, when did he go to jail? In the eighties? No. So he fled from West Virginia to Canada in nineteen seventy-two. Oh. And then he was extradited back to the United States in ninety uh, seventy-five. Right after he killed okay, Sharon so Pryor, he, so there was no and then he DNA served between file. five to yeah no, there's they, they never been any DNA. They yeah. weren't pulling that when seventy five, yeah. yeah, right. Okay, and then he okay. died. So he was released, right. and he died in Canada in nineteen eighty two. So still, like, yeah, no one's doing DNA like that. All right. Well, good. Okay. So that's all that I have uh, for this week. Thank you guys. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at True Crime Archives Podcast, and we are on Twitter at TC Archives Pod. And make sure you're following us on Spotify and Apple. Click the little follow button or plus button. I think both of them have it's one or the other. And you'll get notified every week when we have a new episode. And we will talk to you guys next week. Later. Bye. Bye.